This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello, and welcome back to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored to have Ali Bear here with me today. I've heard so much about her uh, being from Saskatchewan and her as well. We know a bit of the same people, but not only that, I have actually heard about her work and how she is a big advocate within Indigenous communities about reclaiming our culture, but also reclaiming our traditional governance systems and our traditional values as Nehiao people. Ali Bear is a proud mother to two daughters and is a descendant of Dakota and Anishinaabe and Nehiao heritage, and she is a member of the White Cap Dakota First Nation. Not only that, but she has worked tirelessly to advance her education while balancing her duties as a single parent. She attended the University of Saskatchewan and earned a bachelor's degree with a major in sociology and a minor in Indigenous studies. She went on to obtain her Juris Doctor from the University of Saskatchewan College of Law in 2020. We talk about her journey as a lawyer and also her journey to hopefully becoming the third Vice Chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. So she is educated, she has a strong work ethic, and she has really strong values as a single parent, as a single mom, and as an Indigenous woman. I hope you're just as inspired as I was. Hi, hi, have a blessed day, y'all. I'm very excited and honored and inspired to have Ali here with me today. Thank you so much, Hi Hi, for joining me. If you just want to introduce yourself, where you're from, and a little bit about you. Okay, I'll introduce myself in my language uh, first. Ha, a peitu washte, tuwe, iohana, a chiapi, tatanka skawi, imakia peye, wapahaska, oyate, tahawahi. So, my name is Ali Bear, but my spirit name is Tatanka Skawi. I'm from Wapahaska, which is White Cap Dakota First Nation. It's just 20 minutes south of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And um, that's where my father's from. My mother is from Cody First Nation, and that's also in Saskatchewan. My grandmother's from Cowsis First Nation, also in Saskatchewan. And my late mushroom's from Beardy's Okamasis, which is also in Saskatchewan. So I'm a Plains First Nation, Nehihau, Anishinaabe, Dakota and very proud of who I am and where I come from. Well, thank you for that introduction. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm from Muscopeakin, which I'm also Plains Cree, um, and so it's inspiring to have someone that um, has experienced growing up in Saskatoon because I didn't grow up in Saskatoon, and so I actually don't know what it's really like there. And so, what was your experience um, growing up within Saskatoon? Because I know some people say it's like the most racist place in Canada, and I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> um. Yeah, I feel like. Well, when you grow up in it, you're kind of, you're used to it. I mm-hmm. was, I grew up back and forth between Whitecap and Saskatoon. So from my reserve to the city and a lot of people, I grew up in like the West side and a lot of people kind of had those stereotypes. Right. And mm-hmm. so even when I was in grade school, I was in grade one, uh, it was culture day. I wore my jingle dress to school and I got made fun of, you know, those mm-hmm. types of things were happening. Mm-hmm. But you don't really notice the racism until you have other people like when you grow up and people come visit from Ontario and they're like, wow, the racism is really strong here. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I guess we're just used to it, unfortunately. But yeah, people are pretty, pretty, pretty it's pretty blunt sometimes. And, you know, you just got to keep pushing through it. But at the same time, I have that privilege of being a light skin First Nation as well, mm. which I mean, you know, 
is so sometimes you get treated differently. And I've, you know, I've had people say those types of things like, oh, you're different type of Indian, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I really, really don't like that. I was always like, no, I'm not. And then so that kind of brought out a lot of anger in me growing up and the way I acted and stuff too. Well, so while you're growing up, I know you're doing so many wonderful things now. You just graduated from law school. Congrats. Thank you. You're writing for a vice chief. Is that what you call it? Your position with F-A-S-I-N? Yeah. Yeah. And you're also a single mom. So like, how do you juggle all those roles? Um, okay. So it's like not easy. Honestly, I look back, I just ran into one of my friends from law school this um, weekend and she was just like, wow, you're running for vice chief now. And she was like, I can't believe you were so involved in law school. So I, I was a part of the Indigenous Law Students Association. I was the vice president. And that meant I was on the Law Students Association. I went to both exec meetings. And then on top of that, I had a monthly column with Eagle Feather News. And then I started a Dakota Winyan Society within my community, Whitecap. And that was monthly meetings with the women in the community. And then I have my daughters with me. But I normally, I take them to everything I do. I'm trying to normalize bringing kids to like events. So like there's events at law school, there's judges and all these people who are, you know, important. And, and so we, I just bring them with me and they just learn how to be a part of that world. And they're just shaking hands. They're the only kids there, you know, like sometimes I bring my kids to meetings, you know, set them up with the coloring and whatever. Um, you know, but I'm always on the go, like 24 seven. I think I'm used to that. Like, like being really busy. It's kind of also a way of my own coping mechanism for a lot of the things I've been through in my life. I find just keeping busy, at least is doing something that's gonna, you know, help my future, help my children's future, rather than being busy doing things that, you know, might be negative that I might have done in the past as a teenager. Right. So I've learned how to keep busy in a good way. Yeah, it's always about like that embodiment. I find like children learn from, you know, witnessing and like seeing how you embody yourself. And so you're already showing your kids like what is you you can attain to be in law school, even though the law here in Canada isn't inherently like built on Indigenous uh, teachings. And so I'm curious to know what made you want to go into law school? You've spent seven years. And what was your inspiration to go into law? So my first day of undergrad, I actually moved out of Saskatoon, moved to Vancouver, and I went to UBC, and I was like, how do I get in? And I had to go to Langara College. They said, you do a term or a year here, you can transfer. I was like, cool. So I went to Langara. Um, I was late registering. I registered for like all like Indigenous Studies courses. The first book that I got was called Visions of the Heart. Mm-hmm. So it was the first book I got, took it back to my apartment, opened it up. It said, the first name that was there was Patricia Montour. So Patricia Montour was a legal scholar. Um, she became a lawyer and she was um, a Mohawk warrior. And also she was the mother of one of my childhood friends. And my friend, me and her played soccer together growing up. And when we were teenagers, she, she took her own life. And, you know, it had mm. a big impact on me because she was always really there for me. Mm-hmm. And then when I seen her mom's name, and then I started just studying her mom. I was like, what did her mom do? Well, her mom became a lawyer. That's how her mom was advocating for change. Her mom started to understand the colonial systems. That's how she learned how to navigate the systems and help her people navigate the systems. And I was just like, this is what I have to do. I have to be mm-hmm. a lawyer. So it was just like my first day undergrad and I was sold on that's what I have to do is become a lawyer and should try and help. 
Well, and what were the challenges and maybe some of the highlights of going to law school? Because you spent seven years in a colonial institution, and I understand law being one of the most difficult places to be in, especially if you're Indigenous. And so what were some of the challenges and the highlights of going to law school? So, yeah, I think law school is really difficult no matter who you are, right? And Mm -hmm. so I've had a lot of people who are non-Indigenous and approach me, and they were constantly like, you like still going every single day and still being here is like my motivation because a lot of them are come from, you know, like their families, their parents are lawyers, their grandparents are lawyers, their great grandparents are judges, you know, like they just have it in the family. I'm the first lawyer from my community from white kept to go to first nation. I'm the very first lawyer. And a lot of my indigenous friends are like that too. They're the mm-hmm. very first lawyers from their communities or in their families or graduating, you know, university and so it's a really big deal for us, but yet a lot of people don't see that. And they don't see the battles that we're battling at home when it comes to, you know, deaths in our community that mm-hmm. are just like all the time these things are happening and, you know, juggling my children alone on my own. And, you know, like, so you have your ups and your downs. It's not perfect. Like I sat in my vehicle and I cried. You know, there's some classes that I didn't get the best grades on. You know, I wasn't a straight A student. Like in undergrad, somehow, I, I was, I convocated with distinction. I got my degree in sociology with a minor in indigenous studies, but I was always kind of a nerd. I love writing papers and I, and I really focused my studies on indigenous peoples and, you know, finding out my identity and also mm. like, why it is, why was the, the, why are things the way they are mm-hmm. and why did these laws do this? And so I was like really interested in my work that I was doing, but also at the same time I was doing presentations at law school, like decolonizing the law and I would get these looks from all the other students like this girl's crazy like you know and I'm like no I'm not I'm going to show you but having like one other indigenous student in my class that if it wasn't for like the couple other indigenous students I wouldn't have spoke up I probably wouldn't Mm -hmm. have showed up you know because you feel so like out of place Yeah, so alone. But I think to draw on like the people that you're inspired by and the matriarchs and like the strengths of your community is kind of like what gives you hope. And so when I look at law and when I look at the House of Commons or the governance system here in Canada, it's obviously very colonial. It's the entity of genocide and everything that's happened to our people is because of what's happened within the federal institution. And so I'm curious to know like what were some... What was indigenous governance like before like colonization? I know each tribe is different, but could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so the first thing I felt like the best way for me to understand what I was doing was to relate it to myself. So to relate things to myself, I had to find out who I was as a Dakota Winyan. And so we are governed by the Osheti Shikoi, which is the seven council fires mm-hmm. of the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota people. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, how does this work? So, like, I went out and seen elders and I went and spoke with, like, people who were actually already doing this work before me. And then it's just like, oh, my goodness, they have all this work that's done and some is being forgotten about. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. about it. I'm like, we need to make this relevant. We need to carry on this legacy. We need to keep pushing these laws and stuff that people were doing before us. So, like. I had a, um, I was lucky to know, to know people that I was able to reach out to, but like, Mm. so our traditional governance systems were based on, you know, our societies and our traditional societies and the responsibility that we had to not just ourselves, but to each other and to the land and to all living things. And it was all interconnected. And that's what I thought was, I had such a hard time in law school because 
there are watertight compartments. Here's your criminal law. Here's mm-hmm. your family law. They do not intersect, but they do. They, they do, do intersect. Indigenous law, everything's in- interconnected. You mm-hmm. can't have, you can't speak about criminal law without speaking how it affects the family. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like none of this grasping colonial concept was really hard for me. Writing narrow niche papers was really hard for me because it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you're coming from. And so that's why learning about our own like economic systems, you know, our own tax systems that we had was just sharing, you Mm -hmm. know, our like our economy was based on trading. And we so these are like these are rights that should be protected, but they're not like trading between nations. Well, that's time immemorial. That's stuff that we've already been doing. But yet nowadays, oh, you have these imaginary borders and you can't you know, there's no free trade with nations yet. There should be right. These mm-hmm. are things that need to be argued for. And there's, there's a lot of these different arguments that need to continue to go forward. But unfortunately when it's in a colonial setting, they don't hold our laws to the same weight as their laws. Well, and it's so like fragmented, like you're saying, it's like, for me, I look at everything as like connected and interconnected comes back to our teachings. And when you go to school, it's like you become a master or like a scholar in this one area, but it's too, it's also related to like other things rather than that just fragmented aspect. Like I believe that way of thinking is so colonial. And so I'm even wondering, is there a way to even decolonize something that is it, is it possible to decolonize law? Um, like a lot of the work that I was doing at the law firms I was working at was actually implementing more traditional laws into, um, these first nations that were creating their own policies. Mm-hmm. And so it was like policy that was kind of similar to like a, a policy that comes from a colonial framework, but then yet indigenizing it with our own traditional laws and incorporating our traditional laws. So I think there's a way to move forward in that aspect, but at the same time, when it comes to justice, we're kind of really stuck at, you know, not finding any justice in a system that wasn't built for us for us. Because mm-hmm. um, the justice system, you know, is created by a different, you know, non-Indigenous people. And it's, you know, and it seems to continue to work that way. When you look at cases like the Stanley trial, what happened with Colton Bushy, when you look at Tina Fontaine and and what happened in, in that case out in Winnipeg, you know, like there's just a lot of these people who are non-Indigenous who tend to get off when in, when you are Indigenous, you have that over-incarceration rate and it's, it's ongoing. It's a cycle that seems to be never ending and it's continuing to fracture our families and our communities. And, you know, and that's where we have to be stronger together to rebuild our languages, to rebuild our culture, but it's not rebuilding because it's already there, Mm -hmm. but it's just reclaiming that our identity of who we are. But yeah, but no, that goes, goes back to our traditional governance systems, right. And how we govern ourselves. Mm-hmm. We govern ourselves like um, with, with, with being, you know, proud, like with the, the seven sacred teachings, seven, right? Yeah. You got courage, trust, honesty, humility, respect, wisdom, love. Mm-hmm. And, and those, that's what governed us. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, what are we governed by? A bunch of legislation that nobody can even read and understand. Well, that's the thing. Not even, you know, non-Indigenous people have a hard time. Yeah, people get overwhelmed. And I think people do a lot of disassociating and they like to pretend that like ignorance is bliss and I'm not a part of this, but we're all interconnected. And so it does affect us all. And so we are in a pivotal moment in our lives where now there's an election coming up, a federal election. And so I'm curious, there's a lot of debate of even if Indigenous people should be voting within the system. What are your beliefs around uh, voting within the federal election? 
Yeah, that's that's a hard one. I I believe in the freedom of choice too. If we're sovereign people, then we we are we have that choice to do what what it is we think is best for ourselves. But at the same time, we fought for that right. It took us many many years to be able to even vote. So mm-hmm. I think that we should continue to carry on that legacy of the people who fought for that for us to you know continue to participate in this because it's going to affect our lives. So mm-hmm. the more of us that get out and vote, I think it is really important because who we vote for will end up affecting our lives and our children's lives. So I I would tell people to vote, but I don't want to tell people what to do. Okay, so I won't I won't ask who you're voting for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of voting, I know you are coming up and you're running for vice chief. And so what are your hopes um, for this next election? What do you hope if you do become vice chief to bring to the communities around you? Well, okay, so the vice chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations represents the 74 nations in Saskatchewan. So we are here to advocate for our nations. And so we need to be able to build these partnerships with the government in a good way. We need to be able to bring forth our our issues, but yet, you know, in a way where they're going to actually just not be pushed to the side anymore. We need people that are actually willing to work with us. None of that, like, you know, oh, nation to nation, and then we're not treated nation to nation. We're not consulted on when it comes to new legislation. You know, like when the Cannabis Act was enacted in 2018, like uh, just a couple of Octobers ago, a few years ago here, and we were not consulted on that. There's no mention of Indigenous peoples being a part of that legislation. There's mm-hmm. Yet here's a way forward for us to be a part of the economy when we've been blocked out of the economy for years. You have the Indigenous Languages Act. You know, like, were we fully co- consulted when it came to that? All of our communities, all of our nations across Canada? No. Where's the funding in the Act? There's no funding in the Act. It's pretty mm-hmm. much for this. You have Bill C-15, you have the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples becoming law, but where's the funding in that act? It talks about prevention dollars, it talks, you know, there's a, it's a lot of good wording, but where's the actual funding? Where, where can we work on this together, right? We need to be able to work together because we're only as strong as our, as our weakest like members in society, so we need to make sure we're all doing well at the same time, not just taking care of the the 1% and pushing forward that way, because right now it's detrimental to all of our children's futures, not just indigenous children, but everybody. Well, and there's so much talk about, like you're saying, there's so much lip service and there's so much talk about like the 94 calls to action, you know, the TRC, we're implementing this and that, but when it comes to actions, you don't really see it happen um, in the physical reality. And so what do you think actually needs to happen? Like, how do we pressure the government to follow through on these 94 calls to action? Um, Yeah, what do you think actually needs to happen? How can we continue to pressure? Well, unfortunately, I think that right now, because of the unmarked graves that have been uncovered, a lot more people are opening their eyes to how serious this genocide has been and how it is continuing to be ongoing through the child welfare system today and and with the you know the prison system and how we definitely have a lot of work to do ahead of us and i think there's a way more allies as well coming you know that are seeing things for the truth of what it is mm-hmm. rather than you know being in denial and being like oh no we need to focus on this and that there's way more um corporations that are wanting to partner with indigenous nations, you know, that are wanting to do some like resource, like revenue sharing and, Oh, let's, let's work on these things together rather than, you know, let's just exploit 
exploit, exploit, and to the mm-hmm. point where, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, high conflict. But at the same time, I think, you know, we weren't allowed to become lawyers, never mind, we couldn't hire a lawyer until 1951 because of the Indian Act. So therefore, we're just having more and more of our people becoming like uh, in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. And we do need more Indigenous people in the legal profession, because this way we can understand our rights, we can understand our claims, because we have so many claims that are unsettled. We have so many land claims that are unsettled that need to continue to move forward. But if we continue to have people who that's not their problem, not their issue, they don't really care about that. Well, then we're going to continue to just, you know, get pushed to the side. But if we have more people who understand these claims and can make these arguments and present them to the government in their own language mm. and, you know, with their own laws. And then be like, this is what's happening. This is how this is a breach of your fiduciary obligation that you have to indigenous peoples and, you know, show that to them. I think we can continue to move forward and hopefully in a good way. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to like the younger indigenous folks out there who are wanting to know about their treaty rights, who are maybe wanting to get into law and maybe are just feeling overwhelmed by all the information out there? What would your advice be for the younger indigenous folks out there? Um, well, my advice is, you know, the laws come from the land, the law, you know, at the end of the day, the, the real laws of everybody that govern the whole world comes from the land. And so I would encourage our youth to get out there and to take part in ceremony because those were the moments that I had where I actually was like, oh my goodness, like this makes so much more sense now that I'm in ceremony, Mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes you got to just step away from everything that you're doing. And you go and sit and you listen and you're not supposed to talk in a lot of ceremonies. So you sit there and you listen and, and you sacrifice and you, you know, whatever, whatever type of ceremony you're in. And it's a sacrifice and you bring that back with you where you go and you use that to continue to push through every day. Because when I was in law school, that's what I try to say. This is a sacrifice that I'm doing every single day for me and my daughters so that, you know, it's going to benefit us in the future. You got to think about the long run. You got to think about, oh, and 10 years from now, how is this? I'm 30 years old and I'm a lawyer. So, I mean, in 10 years from now, I'm going to be, me and my girls are going to be okay. Yeah. I have, I got those degrees so that, you know, we will be okay in the future. But yet at the same time, I had to put in that work. You know, I had to, I was, but I, I was sober for those years and it's not easy to be sober, get sober, but at the same time, it does help. It helps mm-hmm. to have that self-discipline. But that self-discipline also comes from ceremony mm-hmm. and that, and that comes from the laws that come from the land. So I think it comes down to our laws. Yeah. I just came back from ceremony and I always get so humbled when I'm in ceremony. Cause you're always just, like you said, you're just like, be quiet, listen, learn. You don't know everything. Like you just got to be humble. That's, that's what I've learned so far. Yeah. And I'm getting my spirit name at the end of the month. And I'm really looking forward to it. Cause I also grew up like in a predominantly white community and I didn't have access to my ceremonies because of what happened here in Canada. And, you know, I think, just knowing that we can draw on these teachings, that these teachings are what we need to move forward, like you're saying, together, collectively. And so when you think of Indigenous futurism, you know, what do you hope for in the future? Well, like my number one thing is that I hope that I can live in a society where I don't have to fear the world that my daughters are growing up in. Mm-hmm. because like right now, like it's a really scary place to be in. Like even just being in like 
a single mom. So now I have I have a partner and he's been with me for the past 10 months. We've been together. But prior to him, you know, like just going out and about malls, grocery stores, I had people just being like, be careful. Like people mm. will, you know, look for people like you who are vulnerable and follow you home and things like that. And, you know, just came across situations that were, you know, scary alone with my children. And so I just hope that, you know, I don't have to really worry about them in the future because hopefully we'll live in a world that's more community driven rather than, you know, uh, individualistic capitalistic world where everyone's only looking out for themselves but actually we're looking out for each other and so I don't have to live in fear of the world that my girls are in and then you know when it comes to climate change and everything that you know people are actually making an effort to do their part and I mean that is holding like corporations accountable as well. that's like those are the number one polluters in our world as well right so mm-hmm. clean energy is our I'm hoping our future and I think, you know, I have a lot of hope in the future generations and the young ones coming up. And, you know, there's a lot of really, really smart people who are willing to put in that work to strive for a better society for everyone. Well, it's almost like decolonizing your own perception and your old worldview. And so if you were to define like decolonization in your own words, how would you define it? Um, How to define decolonization? Well, I would, yeah, definitely like taking a step back and, you know, looking at the bigger picture of how you were raised, mm-hmm. you know, um, so do I have to do that through parenting? Um, so I'm like doing my best to take the good and not the bad, you know, but, so, but sometimes it's all subconscious and we, we're not perfect. We're humans. We make mistakes. That's going to happen. Don't, and we can't beat ourselves up for the mistakes that we make. We're human beings. And that's why we got to go get humbled in ceremony, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's, it's, it's being able to hold yourself accountable. Um, it's taking responsibility for yourself and your actions mm-hmm. because right now in the society that we live in, I think it's a lot of everyone's kind of likes to point at somebody else. But I think if we are actually to live by our, our non-colonial standards, it would be that responsibility that we have to ourselves and everybody around us. That's indigenous laws. Right. So that's being true to who we are to everyone around us governing ourselves in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I think accountability and having responsibility for yourself is so important. And there's so much like divide and conquer strategies happening within um, the collective, but I think also sometimes within our nations. And so I'm curious to know, like, um, as an Indigenous woman, um, like, first off, like, have you experienced any lateral violence uh, within your own communities? I just want to talk about like, being an Indigenous woman within our own communities. I know for me, um, sometimes it can feel like, yeah, like you're saying, like, people just want to point fingers at one another. And so how do you deal with, um, you know, reclaiming your power and coming back to your truth? Well, I think that happens a lot for our leadership as well, like in um, any kind of leadership, but I guess like in our indigenous communities, we have our leadership kind of, everything kind of gets blamed on them. You know, we joke around about chief and council, you know, and not all chief and council are perfect, but not all of them can get painted with the same brush at the same time. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of us are just learning because a lot of us aren't educated. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to deal with financial, you know, we have, we don't have that financial literacy, you know, the, we, when we, when you get a bunch, uh, a settlement, you get a lot of our people, you know, don't know what to do with that money because they've never had that much money before. And so that's why then 
then you have the government being like, oh, look, they're doing it to themselves. It's them. They're they're the problem. <laughs> right? I think it's a way they, they know that we don't have the financial literacy. I feel like them giving a like a block of our lump sum of money is a way of them making sure that we keep up in the same cycles because we don't know, like you're saying, we don't know what to do with it. So I think like the, even the way that they give out money, just like throwing it at us, like it's going to solve all our problems is also an issue. But um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And so how do you, um, yeah, if you're feeling like your energy is like, torn in all different ways how do you reclaim your power and come back to your truth and and so and i think that too is like is how they continue to do the divide and conquer um between our 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 nations Mm -hmm. uh so we are all very because we're all very different as well right you know you people and a lot of people don't even know that you know that there's so many different diverse beautiful nations across canada it's not just oh you're native you know it's yeah so yeah, yeah. um that's another thing is it's like learning our history properly uh just like i don't even like calling it canadian history because it's the it's turtle island this mm-hmm. is indigenous land this is indigenous history it's not just you know one month of history or anything like that this is ongoing like we're still learning who we are and the rest of the, everybody else living here who's so proud to live here and so proud to be from this country needs to also know the real history of this country, the roots of this country and where we where, where we come from. Because like I said before, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. But that's why, you know, we continue to fight is because you, we, we don't understand really fully who we are yet. And we don't really understand. There's It comes down to understanding each other. And I think the mm-hmm. more um, that we learn about ourselves and the history of even genocide and even prior to genocide, right? Even prior to settlers arriving here, what did that look like here? You know, that's still a question we, we, we don't really know enough about. And so I think the more that we know about who we are, the less, the I would hope that the lateral violence wouldn't be as bad as it is right now, but because there's a lot of people mm. who come at each other. And for me, I just kind of try to, if somebody says something, you know, I just ignore it because for the most part that I know who I am, I know how I govern myself every day. I know the work that I'm putting in. I know how much, you know, I'm with my children most of the time. So, and if somebody has something to say and they can't say it, you know, to my face and that's, that's on them, that's not me. And that's mm-hmm. a reflection of, you know, who they are and the lives that they're living in. Totally. You know, sometimes you just don't got you don't got the time and energy for it. <laughs> but I do know, you know, it's hard being an indigenous woman, you know, like, cause I was, I was the only indigenous woman at my law firm. And I, I could tell that I was being treated like differently than the other, that there was indigenous men there. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get too into it, but there is, there's definitely a difference and it's unfortunate that it has to be like that. Well, it was kind of like um, even the introduction of the chief and council system because it like tore away uh, indigenous women from like their well-respected roles within societies. And it kind of created like a hierarchy within our own um, our own communities. And so as an indigenous woman, you know, we face, you know, lateral violence. We face colonial violence. We also face um, the crisis of the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and the two-spirit crisis that's currently affecting Turtle Island. And so I'm curious to know, like, would you recommend any actionable steps we can do when it comes to MMIWG2S? Like, how do we make sure that our women stay safe? 
we need to first and foremost create more safe spaces, especially in urban centers, because I have a lot of friends who've gone to women's shelters or who work in in these shelters, and they're not places that you want to go with your children. Mm -hmm. And so if we're able to create more safe spaces where our people are able to go and able to feel safe, then we would be, you know, like there wouldn't be, we wouldn't be out there like trying to get from point A to point B or, you know, we would just have somewhere to go that's safe. And I think that, you know, when we talk about urban centers, you have churches, you have mosques, you have places of, of, of prayer and ceremony for everybody except for indigenous people. And yet this is our land. Mm-hmm. Where is our ceremony space in urban centers? You know, where is our, our safe spaces in urban centers really, you know, like, Oh, they have this shelter and that shelter. Well, a lot of those shelters aren't for a lot of people don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. They're not places for everybody. They're not places for children. And like a lot of the programming, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so I think like number one is um, creating more safe spaces for our people and ceremonial spaces as well. Yeah, I think like there needs to be more of a two-eyed like seeing approach when it comes to like indigenous uh, wellness and healing and ceremony. And then maybe it's some of the Western Um, because even me growing up, I had a hard time. Um, I spent some time in women's shelters and I did see like there's not a lot of support and there's not a lot of resources out there. And so I hope like I hope the government and our nations, you know, start implementing these um, these calls to action. Like the fact that we still have to have this conversation right now is like it just astounds me that it's 2021 and we're still dealing with, you know, just basic human rights mm-hmm. for our people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I'm always inspired about is like the matriarchs within our communities and the elders that continue to dismantle colonial systems that continue to trailblaze industries they've never seen themselves represented in. And so who, who are matriarchs that you are inspired by and how would you define a matriarch? Um, well, I would define a matriarch as a, uh a woman who has made it through uh, like all these barriers that have been placed before us to not allow us to take part in this society and have, you know, tried to make us victims in our society and, you know, try to label us as vulnerable and disadvantaged, but we don't want those labels. We don't want to be your statistics. Mm -hmm. We want to be who we were born to be. And that's like beautiful, strong, intelligent women who radiate the energy, you know, that are mothers, that are aunties, sisters, you know, and that's who you see building up communities most of the time. Like when my grandma passed away in our community, my grandma rose, our our community just kind of fell fell apart. And it was like, Mm. wow, I didn't even notice how much this one woman was holding our entire community up. Mm -hmm. It was like. You know, and then even when we lost my 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 other grandma, our whole family, like they are the backbone. You know, and mm-hmm. then when there's an issue with my brother, who are they calling? Because they're calling sister, <laughs> Allie, Allie. We got this. And I'm like, okay, okay. I'm like, <laughs> and um, you know, we just kind of we see that I think in everyday life, like we always kind of run to grandma. We we run mm-hmm. to mom. We run to our aunties. We run to our sisters. Um. We have that intuition. We have that connection to Mother Earth as as life givers, and and it's it's really special, and it's something that was respected, and it is very sacred, and it, that needs to come back to mm-hmm. the way that it, it was. 
Because I think that, you know, a long time ago when settlers arrived here, they were very threatened by the fact that we had so much authority and power in our communities as Indigenous women. And so they made sure to target us and label us in a negative way. And and that's, I think, where that whole missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Two-Spirit Plus started is because us as women having power was such a foreign thing mm. to the, the colonial system and to the, you know, they came here at the patriarchy and you know, it was a study I still always wanted to do was, you know, because the way that they treated women, you know, they burned witches and things, you know, people, women who wanted to read and study and, and be who they are. And, you know, they were owned. And then, oh, if you're not owned by your dad, then you're owned, owned by your husband. And that was never our way of life. And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, I think our, our matriarchs are breaking down those barriers for us younger ones to keep moving forward. And they're blazing those paths for us. And like my grandmother and my mom and my, you know, they're fierce, strong women. And like, that's, that's who I give thanks for, for being who I am and being able to be loud and proud and outspoken. And I want my daughters to be able to be the same way. Hmm. Yeah. And like you're saying, like, at the beginning, when we're talking about the interconnectedness, I feel like this colonial violence and the harm that has been done to Indigenous women is also interconnected with like the RCMP and the man camps and everything that we see happen, all these men going into our communities. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your thoughts on the RCMP. Do you think that we should be defunding the police? Uh, what needs to happen when it comes to um, this colonial violence that we keep experiencing as Indigenous women? Um, I think that we need to start asserting our own Indigenous peacekeepers and we need to have our own authority systems. We, it, Whether it be here in an urban setting or it be on a First Nation, we try to call the police or we try to call the RCMP and, you know, either it takes them hours to get there or by the time they get there, it's it's too late or they're, you know, they're, be, they're treating us in a very discriminatory manner. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we need to be able to have people who will be there right away, who what, that's like, we see a lot of these different like bear clan patrols and stuff uh, that's in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. these patrols that are starting to from the grassroots and they're mm. from based on indigenous peoples who are coming together to help their communities. Uh, I think that we need more of that. I think we need more grassroots indigenous peacekeepers who are actually going to be there to like, you know, oh, there's a domestic violence call. Well, who's going to be there with the kids right away, right? Like, who Mm -hmm. knows how long the police are going to take to get there and who knows how they're going to treat them once they get there as well. I've I've had my own issues uh, in the past where, you know, the police were called and there was an incident that happened and they literally, their first question for me had nothing to do with the situation. They asked me if I had a treaty card. Wow. And then they asked me if I could use that treaty card to pass the border. What? And I was like... I was like, thanks for your help. You can go now. Like, you know, so I think not all police are like that. They can't all be painted with the same brush. But mm-hmm. I feel that, you know, there's there's a lot of examples uh, and a lot like, you know, the people talk about using the body cams. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the issue with body cams of how much it costs and the fact that they could end up just turning them off when they wanted right. to and say they accidentally turned them off. So I don't know what's what's the answer going forward. And I think, yeah, definitely. If you take some of that funding that's going to the police and you put it into the community and you mm-hmm. put it into programming and you put it into like peacekeeping, indigenous peacekeepers, these patrol groups from grassroots mm-hmm. that are actually really wanting to be there. The first responders be the buffer between the community and the police or the community and the RCMP. 
I think, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it's a question that I ask myself often because I think, you know, sometimes you do feel quite alone when you are living in an urban space and you're like, how can I continue to be of service and of um, just a voice for Indigenous women, but Indigenous people? And I think what you're saying, too, is just like it's also Indigenous men um, rising up and protecting our women as well. And I actually had a question from one of my followers and she said, you know, what is your advice for young women that are in leadership roles? Um, my advice is just to be proud, be, and be loud and be who you are, be assertive. Um, you know, cause sometimes you feel afraid to speak up. You feel afraid to speak up in a room full of men and you feel discouraged or you feel like, you know, they don't take you seriously, but it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter. It was, it's what you think. It's what, you know, it comes down to believing in yourself. So I want mm-hmm. our young women leaders that are coming up just, just to believe in themselves. You know, even if it's just fake it till you make it. That's how I felt for a very long time when I had to walk into a lot of these rooms where it was just non-Indigenous men and these like lawyers. And they were like, they would always put me on the spot and make me like speak first. And I was like, mm. no, just you got this. Like, so it was like, I had to believe in myself, even when I, even when I felt like I didn't, I don't know, it's mm-hmm. the hard thing to try to explain, but I feel that praying, smudging, you know, like before, before a big meeting smudge, remember who mm-hmm. you are, you know, think about, you know, I always carry one of these books around with me. Um, that's by Patricia Montour. And I just carry it around with me because I feel like I'm carrying like that knowledge with me into these spaces. Mm. And I have like, she has my back in some way. And, you know, but they do have our back. Our ancestors have our back. Those ones are watching over us, right? And so if we call on them and we think about them, they'll be there for us. And that's what I believe in and why I think I keep going and have got this far. Yeah, I do the same thing. I smudge before like any kind of conversation. I also I carry crystals. I don't carry books. Uh, mm-hmm. What book? What book is it that you have that you carry around? Um, it's called Journeying Forward. Sweet. And it's about like our self determination and as Indigenous peoples, and it's it's like a mixture of like her life with like the Indigenous laws and the colonial laws. It's really good. Yeah, I just like carrying that. Oh, sweet! I'll have to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so moving forward, you know, what do you have on the horizon for your next, uh, year of 2021 and how can people support your work? Well, I am definitely hoping that on October 28th, 2021, I get elected as the third vice chief of the FSIN. And that also means, you know, advocating for our people in our, our nations in Saskatchewan, but that that's goes wider than that. You know, I have a lot of friends in different from different jurisdictions and it means coming together. And I think that we need to, one of my main platforms is creating our own justice department. You know, we have the provincial government has their own justice department. Mm -hmm. You have the provincial, the federal government has their own justice department and they all have their own legal. Well, where's our justice department? Where's our legal? You know, we're, we're have to hop around from law firm to law firm, Mm -hmm. not knowing which one's going to exploit us or not. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of it, because it comes down to money, but yeah, we should have our own legal, we should have our own justice department. And that's something that I want to try to build. And I want to initiate once I get in it as so, um, I mean, how to support is just doing the best that you can every single day and take it one day at a time. Because this, this is not easy. Life is not easy. Mm-hmm. I was told this by an elder. He told me, he said, life is beautiful and life is wonderful. And he's like, but you know what? I didn't tell you, I didn't tell you life was easy because mm. it's not. 
Mm-hmm. He goes, but it's beautiful and wonderful. And I was like, yes, definitely not easy. That's so true. So, so true. Yeah. Can people vote for you if people want to vote for you? Is that possible? Uh, well, they can share, share my poster, you know, tell. So the people who vote for me are the chief and the chiefs and counselors from these nations okay. in Saskatchewan. Sweet. And then, and then they have delegates from their nation. So there's about a thousand voters from Saskatchewan that are able to vote. And so, but yeah, just getting the word out there, sharing my poster. Um, that's great. And just, you know, if you know anybody who's in Saskatchewan as well, just like be like, yeah, vote for Ali Bear. And sweet. And, you know, hopefully it happens. And if not, then I go back to, I'll go back to the law firm. But I also mm-hmm. plan on, you know, so I can, I have that still. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do really hope I get elected. That's the plan. Yeah, I hope so too. Like fingers crossed for you. Um, and I will definitely be sharing uh, your poster on my Instagram. And if people can, people follow you on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, they can follow me. It's it's public now. Ever since I've uh, went live with my campaign. Sweet. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing a bit of your story today. I look forward to following your journey and hopefully seeing you become the vice chief. And maybe one day when I'm in Saskatoon back on the home turf, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll slide in your DMs and we can go for coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the work that you're doing and highlighting of really important stories out there and sharing it with the world. Thank you so much. Hi, hi. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0H at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.